A content note before we begin. This episode includes references to bigoted ideas, which may be disturbing to some listeners. This is Schooling Bigotry, a limited series from Western State Center about the roles we can all play in defending democracy and confronting hate within our education system. I'm your co-host, Adrian Vandervalk. And in this part one, we're exploring the question of why bigoted groups deliberately target schools and the impact on young people, educators, and all of us really. To help get us started, here's our other host, Ray Page. Hi, Ray. Hi, Adrian. So Ray and I are both fellows at Western State Center, and we met when you became a Confronting White Nationalism in Schools Toolkit trainer. Is that right? Right. For the benefit of our listeners, can you explain what that means? Yeah, it basically means I train schools on what to do if they see evidence of organized bigotry. And lately, it's also meant advising schools that are under attack from white nationalists and other anti-democracy groups. And when you say under attack, do you mean like trying to prevent teaching about the history of racism, comprehensive sex education, things like that? Yeah, exactly. Got it. So our big question today is, why is this happening? Why have schools become cultural battlegrounds? And to explore that question, we have a few examples of incidents that might compel a school to reach out to one or the other of us for help. Let's take a listen. A kid at my school has been coming to class with shirts with weapons on them. And whenever we get to pick a topic for our assignment, he talks about this group he's part of that's against the government. I don't know exactly what they stand for, but we used to be friends, and recently he's gotten kind of scary. As a social studies department district-wide, we have certain standards that we are supposed to teach. In those standards, one of them that has raised the most alerts by parents is teaching about bias. We actually had a group of parents protest the teaching of this unit to the point where they were trying to get teachers fired. Our state passed a law that says we have to teach opposing viewpoints on controversial issues and events. I'm honestly at a loss. How am I supposed to teach opposing viewpoints on the Holocaust? This is a nightmare. One thing it's important to say is that these kinds of incidents happen all the time, and they happen all over the country. And it's not actually new that schools have become cultural battlegrounds, as we'll talk about later. But the frequency and the violence of these attacks has escalated in the last few years. Definitely. And on the surface, these three examples seem very different from each other. Right. One is about an individual kid who's exhibiting troubling behavior. One is about a group of teachers experiencing harassment. And one is about legislation limiting what educators can talk about. But they all have something in common. They are all the result of deliberate targeting by groups that organize around bigotry or anti-democracy ideology or both. So a little later in this episode, we're going to unpack each of these stories one at a time and find the connections between them. But before we do that, let's answer our questions. What's driving this escalation? Why would anyone want to target a school? To help us answer this, we turn to one of the authors of the Confronting White Nationalism in Schools Toolkit and an expert in how to strengthen communities against the rising threat of white nationalism and anti-democracy organizing. 
Here's Lindsay Schubiner, director of the Momentum Project at Western State Center. In 2018, we were witnessing really troubling rising activity from white nationalist groups across the country. And that activity was targeting a lot of inclusive democratic institutions, including schools. Something we know from our work countering white nationalism is that white nationalists target communities themselves, but they also target democratic institutions. And schools are both these really critical cornerstone institutions in our society mandated to educate every student to understand and participate in our democracy. And schools are also community centers. Let's pause there for a second and talk about exactly what we mean by democratic institutions. Yeah, when I started doing this work to counter racist movements, I heard a lot about the importance of democratic institutions from organizers that I was learning from, but I didn't really get it. This was a while ago, before the insurrection, before Trump won the presidency, and I mainly thought about democracy as voting or community organizing. But I started to understand that the institutions that support the functions and processes of our democracy, for example, the way that schools educate young people about how democracy works, these stand directly in the way of white nationalist goals. Because to get rid of the people that white nationalists don't think should be part of our country's future, they have to get rid of democracy altogether. So that's why, even though there's so much that feels unique about this moment, like, let's be real, the last two years have felt like 20. It's not actually a new thing for schools to be attacked in this way. Schools were battlegrounds during other moments in history when our country experienced significant changes, like during the civil rights movement. What we're experiencing now actually has a lot of parallels with that history. Exactly. So, for example, after Brown versus Board of Education, when schools became legally desegregated, we saw a proliferation of private schools opening and many public schools, actually, especially in the South, were renamed for Confederate generals to send a hostile message to African-American students and families. And we're seeing that now with the backlash to gender neutral language and teaching about race in schools. Institutions take steps forward to expand rights for a population that has been underserved. And there's almost always a backlash. And schools would not be targets if they weren't powerful. They help define who has access to opportunities in life. They determine what young people learn about this country. And they are important centers for community life. Schools provide meals and meeting places. People vote there. They can even serve as shelters in extreme weather conditions. That's one part of the story of why white nationalists target schools. But what about the kid we heard about earlier who had become involved in a militia group of some kind? Where does he fit in? Here's Lindsay again. We also know that white nationalist groups specifically seek to target and recruit young people. And the impact that that has on the educational experience of, of all students, and particularly students who are Black, Indigenous, people of color, girls, queer students, people in, in groups that are often targeted by white nationalists. But they're also targeting young people for recruitment and to spread their bigotry and build political power by doing that. And that's something that has 
certainly a really troubling impact on those young people who are targeted for recruitment, but also on the entire community and the schools that they're a part of and the ability of those schools to fulfill one of their core functions and maintain an, an equitable and inclusive and safe learning environment for all students. So two things stand out for me from what Lindsay is saying. One, the kid who was talking about guns at school and really invested in this militia group is being targeted as a base-building strategy by white nationalists. These groups need members if they want to build power. Right. And political power is their goal. As Western State Center senior advisor Eric Ward often says, it's not just about promoting hate. It's about seizing the state. The second thing is when violent or hateful ideas find a home within the school through recruitment, it taxes the educators and weakens the school community. In this case especially, not only is this young person being encouraged to espouse bigoted ideas, but he's also glorifying guns, which is a serious school safety issue. This is another reason I tell every educator I know to download the toolkit. Every step a school can take toward countering the influence of white nationalism also helps strengthen their ability to serve all students and keep everyone safer. Let's talk about the second example we heard, the social studies teacher who was harassed for teaching about bias, something she was legally required to do. Her name is Danielle Wilkinson. And here she is again, talking about how the harassment impacted her. Teaching on its best day when you have your lessons planned out and your curriculum and everything's in order is, is challenging. But when you feel like you're under attack, under siege, it makes your classroom a danger zone and you start to second guess and, and rethink and reevaluate um, everything that you're doing and saying in class. Ray, I can tell you from my own experience, I get calls about similar situations from teachers all the time about community members protesting outside of schools, showing up armed at school board meetings, flooding the phone lines with calls and complaints, and even submitting frivolous FOIA requests. The stress that these incidents cause is overwhelming. Yeah, and I've also heard of teachers getting doxxed, which is to have their personal information publicly released, and receiving death threats for teaching about race, gender, or sexuality. Okay, so let's ask our overarching question. Why did Danielle and her colleagues experience this attack? On the surface, it seems like these are just concerned parents who are pushing some problematic ideas. Does this really overlap with white nationalism in any way? Well, many parents' rights groups... Moms for Liberty being probably the most visible, they may not have a white nationalist agenda, but their goals are definitely rooted in white supremacy and often bigotry. It's almost always a reaction to, for example, schools teaching about racial justice or LGBTQ issues. It might be worth pausing to parse the definitions of white supremacy and white nationalism. And to help us do that, here's Western State Center Senior Advisor Eric Ward. To understand the threat of the white nationalist movement, we have to understand where they organize their bigotry. And they draw their bigotry out of historical notions that we sometimes accept as conventional wisdom. This is the joint history of the United States. It was founded upon an ideology called white supremacy. And white supremacy was based off the idea 
that people were superior based off of skin color or inferior based off of their skin color. No other qualification except skin color. That was the concept of white supremacy and white superiority in this country. It was used to justify three things. The first was stolen lands and resources of indigenous people in this country through genocide. The second was a system of slavery called chattel slavery, a particular brutal form of chattel slavery, none that had ever existed before and none that has existed to this day. And the third, we don't often talk about was the control of women, the control of sexuality in society. It was these three things based off of convincing people that they were superior just off their skin color that allowed the formation of the society and in fact built much of the economics of the society. It is why the United States is such a huge economic power. That's part of our history. Along comes the civil rights movement in 1965 and it challenges white supremacy as the rule of law. And it successfully defeats white supremacy as the rule of law. I'm not saying white supremacy doesn't exist anymore. What I'm saying is, is now it is contested terrain. And this is where white nationalism begins to take root. If white supremacy is a system of exploitation, white nationalism became a social movement responding to the defeat of its defeat to the civil rights movement of the 1960s. It was never going to allow that it lost to black people. Folks could only see black people as inferior. They simply weren't going to say, well, I guess I was wrong about that. So they constructed a new narrative. They borrowed from the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, anti-Semitic false narrative that had been used to justify the Holocaust and pogroms in Europe for decades. Borrowing from that, they constructed their own narrative. They didn't lose to black people. They lost to a nefarious Jewish conspiracy that sought to enslave white people and to destroy the white race. White nationalism became about ethnic cleansing, the removal of people of color and Jews from the United States altogether. The white nationalist movement doesn't seek to take us back to that system of exploitation. What it seeks to do is to engage in ethnic cleansing. That's the difference between white nationalism and white supremacy. So white supremacy permeates government systems and institutions globally. And people don't need to be ideologically committed to white supremacy for it to continue to operate. White nationalism, on the other hand, is a social movement with explicit political goals. White nationalism often overlaps other anti-democracy movements that don't necessarily have the same agenda, but may use many of the same tactics and, in some cases, coordinate efforts. Okay, so then where do these parents' rights groups come into play? I was on Instagram the other day and saw a post from an account that I follow which educates parents on child sexual abuse prevention. The purpose of the post was to clarify the true definition of grooming, since so many parents were writing in confused by the application of the term in relation to drag story time events or other all-ages LGBTQ spaces. The post was quickly flooded with vitriolic comments from a bunch of parents, mostly moms, opposing drag story time events and instruction on gender identity in K-12 schools. What began as a simple educational post spiraled into a barrage of bigoted comments until the creator had to turn them off. And this was just weeks after the targeted massacre at Club Q in Colorado Springs. 
It's striking to me that some parents and parents groups align themselves with movements that use such violent rhetoric and even commit acts of mass violence in the name of keeping their children safe. We've seen this at a couple of drag story hours between parents' rights groups and the Proud Boys, for example. Are these parents' rights groups trying to establish an all-white ethnostate? Probably not, but they are upholding white and male and cisgender supremacy by trying to limit what schools and libraries can teach. And they're creating hostile environments for those who want anti-bias curriculum and inclusive school communities. And they're threatening the core mission of schools. We're fortunate to have access to researchers at Western State Center who have followed the money trail. They tell us that these groups have financial ties to ultra-conservative think tanks that oppose public education at a fundamental level, in large part because public schools are so important to the goal of achieving a truly inclusive democratic society. Yeah, and that's not to say schools have ever done this perfectly. Most of the teachers I know could tell you 10 ways that they'd like to make their schools safer learning environments for all students. But this targeting of schools is an explicit effort to return to a time when schools were segregated and black and brown kids were deliberately underserved to limit their economic and social opportunities. And it's also not a coincidence that this backlash exploded immediately after the summer of 2020, when the U.S. went through an unprecedented moment of cross-racial solidarity with Black-led movements after the police murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. In September, right after the uprisings, then-President Trump banned diversity trainings for federal employees. And since then, teachers, schools, and districts have been fending off intensifying attacks on anti-racist and inclusive books and curriculum. Here's a quick timeline from Education Week of how we got where we are now. During the first legislative session after the summer of 2020, three states passed the first quote-unquote divisive concepts laws that ban teachers from teaching about racism or sexism in a way that might make students feel guilty or uncomfortable. A few months later, in August 2021, teachers across the country who showed support for racial justice began to lose their jobs and experience backlash. March of 2022, the Florida legislature passed the Don't Say Gay bill that restricts LGBTQ students and teachers from discussing their identities in the classroom. Meanwhile, parent attacks on schools coalesced around banning books about racial justice and LGBTQ topics, placing school libraries as their target. These battles around books and curricula escalated throughout 2022. They fueled hundreds of school board races across the country, and about half of candidates endorsed by Moms for Liberty won their races. And countless teachers, administrators, librarians, superintendents, and other stakeholders have been driven out of schools. Let's talk more about the consequences of these attacks, because there are many. We heard earlier from Danielle about how unsettling these are for teachers. Many schools are backing away from teaching books that promote greater understanding of people's lived experiences, like This Book is Gay, or accurate history education, like the 1619 Project about the history of American slavery. And I know from talking to dozens of teachers of color, as well as queer and trans teachers, that they often feel unsafe at work. Another consequence I think it's important to talk about is the ability of schools to educate young people about democracy itself. After the 2016 election, 
I was working for an organization that surveyed educators and asked them how the polarized political climate was affecting them. Half the educators who responded said that they were hesitating or had been told not to teach about the election at all because the polarization in their classrooms was so intense. Wow. So if I had a student in high school, they would likely experience one presidential election during those four years, the years that lead up to their eligibility to vote. And you're saying they might not end up learning about elections at all? That's right. So not only is this polarized climate preventing students from having representation and accurate history instruction, it's interfering with civics education as well. This sounds really scary. I'm thinking about all the examples from history when schools have come under attack in this way as a step on the path to authoritarian leadership. Controlling schools is an incredibly powerful way to control the hearts and minds of a population. So that leads to our next example, actually. We now have civic and political leaders who are pushing legislation saying educators in certain grades can no longer teach LGBTQ topics or issues, or that if they teach the Holocaust, they would also have to teach Holocaust denial. These are ideas that used to be unthinkable. But they're important because a lot of anti-democracy groups have political goals that are not only motivated by racism. They are also misogynist, homophobic, and anti-Semitic. And so why are these ideas now driving mainstream politics? Yeah, it's not really accurate to refer to these ideas as extremist anymore. One thing we haven't talked about is the role of conspiracy theories in spreading anti-democracy and bigoted ideas. We saw this with the completely false conspiratorial rhetoric that fueled the Stop the Steal efforts and ultimately the insurrection on January 6th. The Great Replacement is another conspiracy theory that you hear about on mainstream news channels on any given night. It was one of the ideas that drove the mass killing spree in Buffalo that targeted black shoppers at a grocery store in May of 2022. The premise of the bigoted Great Replacement theory is that there is a plot amongst global elites to eradicate white Christian people. In some versions of the story, Democrats are manipulating immigration laws to tip the scales in their own favor. I'm hearing global elites, and it reminds me that so many conspiracy theories are basically recycled versions of centuries-old anti-Semitic tropes, which again is why the idea that we would in any way be teaching kids to minimize or deny the Holocaust is absolutely terrifying. Well, politicians wouldn't be pushing these ideas if they weren't powerful, right? Yeah, there has definitely been a deliberate effort to tap into fears that a minority of families and voters hold around these issues. But when we scratch the surface, all evidence points to efforts to undermine the power and core functions of our schools. To tell us more about conspiracy theories, here's Eric Ward again. The benefit of embracing a conspiracy theory is you actually never have to address the actual problem. You get to claim you're addressing the issue. But all you're really doing is telling people a uh, big lie, an illusion around things that impact their lives in, in very real ways. But what you get out of it is a lot of attention without having to actually deliver. So it works well for elected officials and others who aren't serious about strengthening our community and our country. 
but you also get a distraction. People get drawn into a story rather than drawn into solution. Conspiracy theory actually distract people by weaving this never ending story about if you just somehow learn this truth, right? Everything, everything will change. But the truth is, is that change comes from hard work. It comes from talking to your neighbors to build real solutions. Okay, so we found the connections between these three examples. We've answered the question of why groups would choose to target schools and the young people who attend them. And we've looked at the consequences of this targeting. Now what? Yeah, I know it sounds bleak, but there's actually a lot to feel hopeful about and a lot of reasons to take action. In part two of this series, we're going to talk specifically about what individual listeners can do and how we can all work together to strengthen our schools against these threats. The hope lies in finding other people who believe in the power and the value of schools, people like Danielle and her colleagues. Take a listen to what happened next at her school. So we actually got together across grade levels as a social studies department and discussed what was going on, shared our thoughts, shared our feelings, shared what was going on in our individual classrooms. And we just realized that we weren't doing anything wrong. And so we basically banded together and decided that we were going to push forward. And if the district decided that they were going to change the curriculum, then that would be a district decision that we would have to deal with when and if it happened, but that we were resolute in the fact that this was a necessary skill and it was our requirement and our duty as educators who were committed to teaching the next generation of participants in our democracy to think critically, to understand these these historical thinking skills and how to apply them, especially um, in, in the current situation that we face in this country. So we basically just decided that we were going to do it anyway, come hell or high water. You have to be convicted that you are doing what's right for you and for your students. And if that is the place that you're coming from, then there's nothing more that you can do. So stay the course, figure out where you feel comfortable and do the right thing. Keep doing the good work. And I think it'll eventually play out to our advantage if we do it the right way. Join us for part two in the series, where we're going to dive into specific things you can do as an individual and in collaboration to defend democracy in your school community. We'll take a closer look at the tactics used by different bigoted groups and the many ways we can fight against them. Schooling Bigotry was produced by Western State Center with sound engineering by Jack Straw Cultural Center and Square Lightning Communications and Design. To download the Confronting White Nationalism in Schools Toolkit, visit westernstatecenter.org schools. And if you have an experience you'd like to share with our team, you can send us an email at info at wscpdx.org. Thank you for listening. Until next time.